In recent times, we've looked at the legacies of the nuclear testing that took place in Australia, at Maralinga, Emu Field and the Monte Bellows off WA. Now, today we're going to be talking about the legacy of the nuclear testing that took place on US soil, particularly the very first one known as the Trinity Test. To tell us about it, Leslie Bloom, journalist and author, who in 2020 published a book called Fallout, the Hiroshima cover-up and the reporter who revealed it to the world about one of my all-time heroes, John Hersey, whose reporting revealed the truth of the devastation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, She continues to report on the ongoing effects of fallout from nuclear testing around the globe and we welcome her to our little wireless program. Please uh, tell us about the new research on Trinity because the fallout spread far and wide. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, great to be on the program. Thanks for for taking the time to to talk about Trinity. Um, yeah, so the the test, which is you know nearly eighty years old now, uh, happened nearly eighty years ago, has been in the news lately. Um, there was a new study that was just released uh, this summer, pretty much coinciding in, uh, coincidentally with uh, the release of the movie Oppenheimer. And it studied uh, the tr- the true extent to which Trinity's fallout spread across North America, and what the study's authors concluded um, after using some newly unveiled data and a lot of really high powered modeling equipment um, was that the, the the fallout spread across forty six states in America and also reached Canada and Mexico. So it was, it was much further than had been previously conceded by the US government or even really known by scientists. Tell us about the significance of the Crawford Lake in Canada. Uh, authors discovered that Trinity's fallout had reached the lake. The deposition in it uh, has just really been determined to show that the Anthropocene era began in 1950, um, showing that, you know, that that was the era in which humans really began to have a profound impact on the Earth's climate and their environment, um, really shifted us entirely into a new era. And so what this study showed is that the deposition actually, um, nuclear deposition began reaching that lake five years earlier than previously thought. And they can even tell you the exact time and the date after the Trinity test in which the deposition reached that lake. Lake. So, the the this this new study is really rewriting history on several fronts. Now, there was no system in place to monitor radiation beyond the immediate vicinity of the Trinity test. Oh, that's that's accurate, and you know, I would even argue that you know the. The, the monitoring, if you want to call it that, in the immediate area surrounding the test was primitive at best. Um, you know, that certainly there was no no way to monitor the fallout across the states. And I don't think, you know, that the Manhattan Project physicists and doctors and other principals really anticipated that the fallout would go that far. Um, you know, they were really thinking that the fallout hazard was going to be in the immediate area surrounding the, the test site. So it made, you know, that the lack of data and the lack of monitoring made Made it quite difficult for um, for for decades for researchers to really ascertain the extent of the 
fallout and, and where it fell and, and, and uh, how heavily. Well, history records the fact that the uh, scientists and the project were taking bets on the magnitude of the explosion from the range of it being a total fizzer to evaporating the atmosphere. Yeah, that's that's accurate. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, you know, they had guesses, but they didn't know. You know, they didn't know how high the cloud was going to go. The best estimate was, you know, around 12,000 feet, they thought. Guess what? It went between 60 and 70,000 feet into the air. Um, you know, they didn't really know how strong the blast was going to be. It ended up being many times stronger than they anticipated. Um you know, there was you know, a little bit of conjecture about whether the bomb would ignite the nitrogen in the atmosphere, in the Earth's atmosphere, and thus end civilization. Um, that was apparently not taken very seriously beyond, you know, you know an initial um, sort of gallows humor betting pool placed on the outcomes on that. But uh, it, quite a big deal was made out of that in the movie Oppenheimer, you know, a lot of fanfare surrounding that. I must confess I've yet to see the film, but I've had a lifelong interest in the subject. Now, another breakthrough, historic data released by the European Weather Centre. Tell me about that because you described that as, well, a game changer. Yeah, so, you know, the team that released uh, this new study on Trinity's fallout, again, you know, concluding that it really went across most of, of the continent of North America, um, initially, you know, they, they planned to chart all of the atmospheric tests that were done in the U.S., and that includes all the tests that were done in Nevada as well as the Trinity test. Um the Nevada tests, they had an easier time with it because they're, you know, they began in 1951, but the kind of weather data that they needed wasn't available um, before 1948. And of course, you know, Trinity takes place in 1945. So they were really, this team was really handicapped at first in terms of, you know, how were they going to map the fallout? And then lo and behold, as they're in the middle of this study, hugely frustrated by the lack of data. Um, two of the, the principals of the study contacted the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And there, you know, they were told by um, one of the scientists that, lo and behold, the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecast had only a week earlier released historical data that charted weather patterns extending um, 30,000 feet or higher above the Earth's surface back to 1940. And it was this you know, the, the study's authors described it to me as this sort of miracle moment. Suddenly they had the, the, the data, the long lost data that they needed to calculate Trinity's fallout. And they used um, modeling equipment that's, you know, state of the art uh, that was provided by NOAA. And they were able to crack a code that they hadn't, that nobody had ever really been able to crack before. And their conclusion was that, um, you know, the fallout had gone significantly further than previously stated um and that it should it was a big revelation but should surprise nobody as the lead author of the study told me i'm talking to leslie bloom leslie were there any evacuation plans for the locals I mean, it, it was taken into consideration, right? I mean, so the, the Manhattan Project principals knew that there were significant population living in around the chosen area. I mean, it was supposedly chosen for its relative uh, uh, desolation um, and removed from population, but there were farm families that were living uh, at, it, within 12 miles of the site. And then when you're really taking a step I'm back- I'm sorry, it, I didn't know that, really. 
Yes, there were. And uh, also, when, when you know, taking a big step back, there were around half a million people living within 150 miles of, of ground zero, of the proposed ground zero. So there were significant you know, population considerations. However, in the Manhattan Project, secrecy trumped all. And, you know, any sort of mass evacuation ahead of time, they felt, would have compromised the secrecy of the project. It might have tipped off enemies. It might have tipped off the Japanese. So it was decided that nobody would be evacuated. Nobody would be told ahead of time. Uh, and so basically, the, you know, these poor civilians who are living in the area surrounding Ground Zero are awakened, you know, at 529 in the morning on, on July 16th, thinking that they were experiencing the end of the world. I understand there was a cover story and that involved, uh, well, journalists being misinformed that there was an ammunition factory exploding. Oh, yeah, it was, you know, it's not like like there weren't contingencies put into place, you know, for how they were going to roll out the story of of this this enormous explosion. I mean, it was seen in in three states and two countries. It could have been seen in space. So, you know, there had to be some sort of explanation for it. So Manhattan Project principals, uh, principally Leslie Groves, General Leslie Groves, who was the head of the Manhattan Project, prepared a cover story um, that they released to uh, the wire services and local press outlets that an ammunition dump had exploded <laughs> nearby on a, on a military base. I mean, it really was the most outlandish and unbelievable fiction. Um, but that's what was offered up. And uh, after uh, Hiroshima, and it was revealed by the U.S. government that it was a, a new experimental atomic bomb that had devastated uh, that the Japanese city. It was revealed that it had been, you know, tested in in New Mexico, and then suddenly civilians realized, oh, well, actually, it wasn't an ammunition dump after all, and they were, were able to put two and two together that, you know, that uh, they had been lied to. Now, before we push on with the story, as well as that uh, cover that an ammunition factory had exploded. I learned from you that obits were prepared for Oppenheimer and the lads in case something went horribly wrong. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty crazy stuff, right? So the, the Manhattan Project had its own in-house propagandist who was a New York Times science reporter who had been borrowed for the, the specific... Um, purpose, dual dual purpose of a, you know, being the unofficial historian of of the project, but b also helping to prepare um, public relations materials. And as you say, some of those materials consisted of fake obits for the Manhattan Project principles in case the the Trinity test went horribly wrong. And um, if, if I'm remembering correctly, the obits, the content of them was that they had been killed by some sinister gas. That had been released in a in a in a failed uh, weapons experiment, but certainly didn't reveal that you know the, the atomic bomb or or a project yeah. pertaining to the atomic bomb was responsible. So all of these materials were were teed up. Um, it was it was again the 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 efforts to maintain secrecy at all costs was was um, really something. And the government uh, thanked the New Mexico press for covering up the explosion. After the bomb, uh, after the bombs were detonated in Japan. Oh yeah, I mean the the new the the local press outlets and the wire uh, wire services alike ran with the fiction of the the ammunition dump, um, and you know even though they were reporting on you know how enormous the the flash from the bomb had been, I mean one of the local newspapers 
reported, you know, probably falsely, that a blind girl 100 miles ago had seen the flash or registered the flash and commented, what's that? So, you know, even though, you know, they were reporting on the actual effects of this, this so-called ammunition dump, um, you know, they, they ran the, the cover story, Lock, Stock and Barrel. Leslie Groves, General Leslie Groves, personally thanked one of the publications for its its patriotism in in having done so um without you know at any point mentioning how significantly that publication had helped put its own civilians and its own readers into danger by not flagging the um you know flagging the potential fallout and the health risks that came with remaining in the area Leslie would you please tell us about the court of a family so there you know the Cordova family is one of um many families who were in within a you know 100 mile ring i believe they were around 40 miles away on their family farm and uh one of the descendants of the family Tino Cordova is one of the most uh passionate and highly recognized um advocates on behalf of what are called downwinders, i.e. people who have lived in proximity to nuclear testing zones and may have been exposed to fallout and, and gotten sick as a result of it. Tina describes her family's farm in the, in the days, you know, after, after the bombing and, you know, fallout, you know, this mysterious ash just got onto to the grass. It got into the house um, you know, it was it was summer, so all the windows were open. You couldn't just close the doors and the windows because the temperatures were so so high. Crucially, you know, it got into the cisterns. You know, it, all of the water was captured that they drank, um, as opposed to having you know elaborate plumbing systems. Uh, it was consumed, and you know, all of the livestock was exposed to it. Uh, you know, so really, all of the the vital land systems, water, and and food that her family, that the Cordova family lived on, were exposed. And you know, generations of her family, her great grandparents, her grandparents, her father, Tina herself, uh, you know, they have all continued to suffer from terrible health consequences of the of the fallout in the area. And Barbara Kent, tell me about her. She was one of the campers exposed to this uh, radioactive ash falling from the heavens. It's a devastating story. Yes. So Barbara was, uh, I believe, thirteen years old when the um, when the bomb was tested, and you know she was nearby at a dance camp. She and her fellow campers, all young you know, adolescents, were all sleeping in a cabin when suddenly an enormous explosion threw them all onto the floor. And you know they ran outside, and uh, you know she said that it just hurt to look at the sky. It was so so bright. I mean they were you know about forty or fifty miles away from the explosion. She said it was you know the most astonishing things she'd ever seen, most unnatural colors in the sky. And then later that day, as the ash was was falling across the the terrain, she and, and her fellow campers they, they were touching the ash, and at first they thought it was snow, but it was. They, they said, oh my goodness, it's so strange. It's hot snow. And they kept feeling the snow and pressing it into their faces and pressing it into their bodies. And they were, you know, frolicking in it. Um, and then Barbara, you know, told me in an interview a couple of years ago that by the time, you know, they all reached around the age, or would have reached around the age of 30, she was one of the only survivors of, of that group. You know, everybody else had succumbed to, to ailments and she herself has had um, various various cancers and suffered um, health consequences, she believes, from that exposure. You've already pointed out that the people of New Mexico deduced what that huge explosion had been after after the news of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 
But were they monitored for possible health effects? They were not. And, you know, as, as Tina Cordova said to me herself, you know, yes, even though there was the aha moment, you know, of, oh, well, now we know what the bomb was, or we know what that explosion was, that they certainly didn't know what that meant from a health consequence perspective. And, you know, interestingly, you know, the U.S. government and military would would set up a monitoring apparatus in Japan to monitor uh, um survivors of uh, exposure in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but certainly not in New Mexico, because doing that in New Mexico would have been admitting that they had exposed their own civilians to to these kinds of, of dangers and had not told or evacuated them beforehand or afterhand. And so one um, expert who wrote a book called Atomic Doctors, who documents uh, Manhattan Project Doctors and Physicists, um, around the time of the Trinity test said that they really considered it to be, um, how did he phrase it, a, medic- a medico-legal question. Uh, you know, it's like once they acknowledged uh, exposure uh, of, of the New Mexican civilians, it would just be a Pandora's box of litigation. So they just didn't open the box. Now, there was at least token compensation offered to those affected by radiation in Nevada. What's yeah. the status of the campaign from people affected, uh, those you describe as the downwinders? Well, astonishingly, the Trinity test downwinders have never been included in legal compensations uh, by by the U.S. government, nor have they been acknowledged as as downwinders. In 1990, uh, there was in the U.S. an act passed called the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, and it did indeed acknowledge and compensate people who were civilian. Um, but there, uh, you know, it was this, the act excluded Trinity downwinders and, and many other nuclear workers and people who may have been exposed in, in the surrounding states um, from the Nevada test site and also from Trinity. There has been a movement to expand and extend it. The act was due to expire two years ago. It got extended. Uh, it's, it's, it's on life support until 2024. And there is actually a fascinating bipartisan, which is rare in America right now, a bipartisan push to expand um, and strengthen the, the act to include Trinity Downwinders and other, um, across the U.S. at last. Um, and so that... It's uh, it's in the beginning stages right now of of this next push. You know, the Senate passed uh, passed the expansion and then the extension as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, but it still needs to be pushed all the way through by uh, next summer, by the summer of 2024. Leslie, before we say goodbye, is there any data showing the number of deaths that the nuclear testing program have caused in the U.S.? It's a really sticky wicket, and even people who you know believe that the the, the amount of death and um, and illness that has been caused by by fallout and by exposure, um, even people you know experts who believe it to be quite a high number, uh, say that the lack of data from that period of time, you know, in the age of, of what data is available, makes it really hard to calculate that. Um, you know, the, the National Cancer Institute did. A seven-year study um, of Trinity test downwinders, and then com- concluded um, this was this was years ago. Now uh, concluded that 
around a thousand people may have gotten cancer from exposure. Um, but they, you know, acknowledge that the, the study was extremely limited and that they just don't have the data they need to make accurate calculations. Um, you know, the, the New Mexico legislature, they really came out swinging about those um, results of, of the National Cancer Institute test. You know, they found it, they were completely incredulous that a massive nuclear explosion, 21 kilotons, that's the equivalent to 21,000 tons of, of, of TNT. It was, it was much bigger than the Hiroshima bomb. They're completely incredulous that that would have only caused, you know, a, a thousand cancers in their immediate area. Um, and so they are continuing to push for uh, increased uh, funding for evaluations and, and new tests to see if they can pull off some miracle like the one uh, in the study that calculated the, the, the continental fallout that just came out. We've heard the revelations of Leslie Bloom, journalist and author extraordinaire. Thanks very Thank much you. for coming on the program, Leslie. And we will be looking at the ongoing impacts of nuclear testing in the Pacific before the end of the year. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.